Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what is the future of suffering? Our guest today is philosopher David Pierce, one of the most prominent thinkers in the transhumanist community, and certainly someone whose ideas we've referenced a fair amount on this podcast. Uh, in 1998, he co-founded the World Transhumanist Association, which is now known as Humanity Plus. Uh, and although he's you know, written and spoken very widely, he might be best known for writing The Hedonistic Imperative, which is a book that advocates for the eradication of all suffering. Uh, David Pierce, welcome to the podcast. John, Ted, good to be with you. Uh, so we want to get deep into ideas in a moment, but maybe before we do that, a little bit of background information on you would be nice. And uh, you're very immersed in the transhumanist community. And I just sort of wanted to ask you, what what is the single moment or thing that drew you into that community? How did you get involved with them? Ah, I suppose it was shortly after writing The Hedonistic Imperative, which was a manifesto I wrote in late 1995. Uh, I was, in fact, it was Mitch Porter who told me, just dropped me a line, like, uh, uh, the manifesto and uh, told me I was a transhumanist and to be honest it hadn't really uh, uh, occurred to me before because though as a child I was interested in radical life extension and intelligence amplification uh, uh, transhumanism I associated with the west coast of the, of the United States but uh, yes uh, over in the, the succeeding couple of years a number of other people got in touch including Nick Bostrom who at that stage was a young postgrad at LSE and one thing led to another and yes we set up the World Transhumanist Association back in in, in 1998 and uh, yes one of uh, uh, the commitments of the WTA is uh, affirmed in the Transhumanist Declaration of 1998 and uh, 2009 is uh, a commitment to the well-being of all sentience, which sounds extraordinarily uh, uh, bold, but uh, is, yes, I think technically feasible, at least in our forward light cone. Which is a great transition, because it's exactly where I want to go next, which is that when I read your work, usually somewhere near the very beginning, it makes this very specific and bold prediction that in the future, we will see the eradication of all suffering throughout the living world, which I assume most people would agree sounds like a noble goal, but I'm sure you encounter a lot of in objections to that from the standpoint of feasibility. So maybe we could start uh, digging into, you know, wh where do you get your confidence that such a world without suffering is possible? Uh, well, let's start with the, with the notion of hedonic set point, which essentially alludes to the way that, rather akin to a thermostat, uh, each of us uh, uh, are born with what's called the, the hedonic treadmill, the set of negative feedback mechanisms that most of us aren't very happy or very sad for very long. Um, and that uh, to perhaps the most striking example one can give is a number of studies have suggested that six months after either winning the lottery or becoming paraplegic in a terrible accident, most people will have reverted to their previous level of well-being or ill-being. And we also know from, from twin studies that uh, hedonic set points uh, has a very strong degree of, of genetic loading. And now we have 
uh, decoded the human genome, neuroscientists are starting to tease out particular genes and allelic variations associated with high and low hedonic set point. And even now, if, if we wanted to, if we thought, if we think it's a priority, instead of just shaking the genetic dice and seeing what happens before having kids, we could actually use pre-implantation genetic screening uh, to load the dice in our children's genetic uh, 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 favor. I mean, so something like the Compt allele, for example, methyl transferase has has two variants, one associated with a high on a, a low hedonic set point, other things being equal, which would you choose for your future child? Um, and uh, yes, there are a number of other variant alleles. Uh, of course, all sorts of pitfalls, and it's, it's very complicated, but just as we are starting to screen for various uh, genetic diseases like sickle cell fibrosis, who would deliberately want to pass on the sickle cell gene to their future child? It's important to recognize that low mood can be at least as devastating to quality of life uh, uh, as, as, as cystic fibrosis. Uh, and uh, yes, I, I, I anticipate that with time, more and more prospective parents will be choosing using the genetic makeup of, of their future children. Just for the benefit of our audience, I wanted to just go over these two really interesting and important terms that you mentioned, uh, which is hedonic set points. People might not be familiar with that or be able to parse out uh, what that means and, and the hedonic treadmill. So let's talk for just a moment about what those things mean. It- yeah, I suppose by, by, uh, by analogy with a thermostat, only unlike uh, a thermostat, which you can set to a high or a, a low point and then temperature of your flat will, will, will vary around whatever set point you choose, until recently it, it wasn't uh, really possible to do something like that uh, for sentient beings. Um, but already it's possible uh, to, to to breed mice and rats, uh, strains with high or low hedonic set points, ultra-depressive rats, or alternatively uh, rats that don't get uh, depressed at all, even when they're appallingly stressed. Um, uh, and uh, uh, likewise, in future, it will be possible to do uh, the same same with humans because yeah it's a striking fact if if you look across uh, the world today uh, in one sense our lives certainly in the developed world is is so much so much richer so much better than our ancestors you look at uh, living standards infant mortality longevity a whole host of of indicators like that but if you look at suicide rates the incidence of of depression of self-reported happiness or unhappiness it doesn't seem subjectively we are much better off than our hunter-gatherer ancestors and once again, it's it's the hedonic treadmill, this brutally effective set of of, of feedback mechanisms. Other things being equal, uh, uh, Mother Nature doesn't want us to be happy. Other things <laughs> being equal, it pays, genetically speaking, to be discontented, always seeking more, uh, you know, more money, more reproductive opportunities, more status. Um, right. So let me just restate that back at you. You stop me if I'm wrong. Uh, I want to see if I'm understanding. The hedonic treadmill seems like it's the set of natural processes that cause pleasurable experiences to fade from 
uh, your or bad ones or right? bad ones, right? So that as you have a, a negative experience or you have a pleasurable uh, experience that that has positive feedback, those things um, fade away, and you you gravitate back toward this hedonic set point. Some baseline of happiness that you're essentially born with, right? Something that's, yeah, it's, it sounds like it's genetically overdetermined, at least to a degree, and that it differs between individuals, sort of the way IQ does or other, um, uh, you know, uh, maybe libido does, uh, but that every person has um, like a kind of average amount of happiness that they're usually experiencing, and then they, they, their experience oscillates somewhat above and below <laughs> that. Is that correct? That, that's correct. Some people oscillate more than others. Some people are sure. very equable and only small fluctuations. Others are much more uh, volatile. Uh, in, in most, most mercurial people are people with outright bipolar di- disorder. Most people aren't, aren't bipolar. Uh, and this isn't to say that the environment doesn't matter. Of, of, of course it does. Uh, and it's even true to say that chronic and severe stress can lower hedonic set point. But in terms of both the upper and lower bounds of our hedonic range and our, and our normal hedonic set point, our average level of well-being or ill-being, yes, it does seem to be strongly genetically constrained. Um, and the lessons here for, for transhumanists, I think, or, or, or anyone who wants to, to build a better society, is that even if all the wonderful things we want are delivered, you know, kind of radical life extension, superabundance, morphological freedom, all the good and wonderful things you can think about, unless we actually tackle the neurobiology of, of reward, it may well be that uh, life or level of subjective being or uh, well-being or ill-being won't be radically improved, which is, is very counterintuitive, of course. Well, I, I think there's a case to be made that of all the you know, transhumanist concerns, uh, maybe happiness is the most important since that's you know, what we quite literally subjectively experience. Um, you know, if we're living longer or more intelligently or free of risk. Uh, in fact, even if like, you know, disaster were to befall us, right? If we still felt subjectively positive about it, you could maybe say <laughs> that in some senses it wouldn't be so bad. So it seems like everybody in the transhumanist community is, seems to me at least, and perhaps I'm wrong about this, seems a lot more focused on these other areas, intelligence, longevity, and so on. And risk, and and you seem like the the main person that I know that's talking about this issue of well being. Um, do you does that seem the case to you? And and if so, like why isn't there more discussion of this issue? Good question. I think on the whole, most transhumanists tend to be temperamentally optimistic, uh, and yes, there there are thankfully uh, many people whose lives aren't blighted by depression or anxiety disorders. Uh, they're not in pain. Uh, and yeah, it, it, shall we say the conquest of pain or lot or low mood is not uh, is not part of your particular life narrative. 
And it's extraordinarily difficult to abstract away from one's own experiences uh, to see see the broader picture. I mean, yes, as you probably gathered, a lot of the time I write as though the whole history of life in the universe is, is, is the conquest of suffering. And I, I think, uh, uh, yeah, uh, that is, if you like, my master narrative. But you could read, let's say, Ray Kurzweil or, or, or Nick Bostrom or Eliezer Yukowski and, and get a very different master narrative. Um, but oh, just, just one thing I'd add there, I think it's very important to, 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 to stress that it's, it's not a case of, of, of choosing, shall we say, happiness over longevity or intelligence, that uh, the three, if you like, the big S, th super S's of transhumanism, super happiness, super intelligence, and super longevity, in principle, at any rate, uh, they can they can mesh, mesh together and even a, a radical recalibration of your hedonic treadmill so that you've got a much higher hedonic set point, much higher quality of life. It's not a matter of giving up your existing values or preference arch architecture, uh, uh, unless that is you're somehow committed to the persistence of, of, of suffering itself. So, yes, I, 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 said, I said it. I, I regret the fact that there isn't, shall we say, more cross-fertilization between the different strands of transhumanism. Well, now you mentioned preference architecture, which reminds me of, you know, pop culture is filled with these images of what happens when people take happiness pills or get some happiness technology. And that often leads to a kind of zombification. Where, right. It's paralyzing. Right. Uh, and so where people lose all motivation to do anything. Right. They won't take their uh -huh. hand it's away from the hot stove, for example. Sort of a heroin or, analogy. Right. Yeah. Or, or, or the, the rat pressing the lever in the, in the famous experiment. Right. So what's the explanation of why you can't have too high of a hedonic set point? Like, is there a problem with being, you know, at some point we raise that too high and people don't respond to their environment. They don't know what's good or bad anymore. Like, how do, how do we deal with that outcome? Um, as long as informational sensitivity is preserved to good and bad stimuli... Uh, it doesn't seem to matter a great deal where you actually are on the hedonic scale. Yes, there is uh, there there is the, the the risk of being too, shall we say, optimistic. If one you know the proverbial rose-tinted spectacles versus depressive realism. But the reason that low mood, for example, seems to have ar arisen, it actually seems to be some kind of cruel genetic adaptation that uh, that low mood is associated with behavioral suppression of subordinate behavior of, of 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 keeping one's head down it seems that non-social animals don't tend to get depressed and low mood seems to be an adaptation to group living i mean in the in the ancestral environment, uh, you know, on the, on the African savanna, it made a lot of sense genetically for vulnerable naked apes to band together in in tribes. Yet some uh, tribes people were, were much more uh, dominant and stronger than others. Others were weak. Uh, the deltas, and if uh, you're a delta and you challenge the the alpha male for dominance or access to to mates, you're likely to get badly beaten up or driven uh, driven from the tribe. And very crudely speaking, it's been suggested that uh, low mood and the subordinate behaviour associated with low mood is the internalised. Of the, of the losing subroutine um, but 
other other things being equal, uh, good mood is is a strategy a strategy for winners. But I think perhaps the greatest challenge, if we are to phase out suffering, isn't just delivering uh, raw bliss and just phasing out nastiness. It's ensuring that as we do uh, phase out unpleasant experience, uh, we we do so in ways that don't compromise intellectual insight or social responsibility. But, uh, yes, it 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 does carry uh, potential risks, and as well as the benign forms of of of, of extremely positive mood, there are also pathological forms such as in in euphoric mania. So yes, all sorts of pitfalls to guard against, as well as fantastic opportunities. Right. I think the thing people worry about is the sort of drug analogy, right? Of like somebody who's blissed out on morphine or something. Uh, you know, the way that they appear to the outside world, no matter how much fun they're having, is is not uh, pleasant. And so there's a lot of judgment about that. But if it's possible, as you've written, to uh, sort of attenuate the range of these things, perhaps uh, one might find enhanced people who just appear like the happiest among us, right? Like, uh, or maybe even a bit happier, but not qualitatively that different is that correct yes i mean it, it's it can sound science fiction but the obvious thing to do is to take case studies of extremely high functioning people who right. who have an extremely uh, high hedonic set point uh, i often mention Anders Sandberg, very well-known transhumanist uh, scholar, and I do say by name because I've expressed permission, as he says himself, I do have uh, an extremely high hedonic set point. Uh, and, well, you know, someone who, who, who isn't familiar with the name will wonder about such things as, 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 you know, is he, let's say, prone to extraordinarily risky behavior? No, quite the reverse. He actually studies uh, existential risk, uh, uh, the FHI in, uh, in Oxford. So, yes, though in principle, at any rate, it may be possible in centuries and millennia to come to really go completely beyond the bounds of, of human experience uh, starting in you know the kind of the near-term future the obvious thing to do is to is is to ratchet up hedonic set points of our children and perhaps our elderly selves without going uh, into the realm of, of, of post-human super happiness yeah that's a great argument I, I feel like we've Reca- recapped a version of that argument talking about super intelligence and just you know mentioning that you know the difference between an Einstein and an average person is already so great in terms of what they can offer the, the the world and society. So why not at least try to get that far, even if it's not necessarily possible to go further? And the same the same argument I think holds well we, here. We have examples of of people that are uh, extremely happy and productive. And actually, you've written about hyperthymic people. Do you want to share with our audience? Yeah, I mean, a hyperthymic, it's it's a rather uh, uh, fancy term just just for people who have an extremely high hedonic set point, but they but they're not prone to euphoric mania. Um, and yes, amongst the, the extreme hy- uh, hyperthymics, there are people who assem- essentially uh, just do not suffer uh, a, a bad mood. Um, but as I said, it's so long as one is you know, re- responsive to good and bad stimuli, one can, one can behave in an extremely high-functioning high functioning way. Um, it's. I think one of the more troubling counter arguments here is that some people would, would say, "Well, I actually would want to feel 
uh, depressed in certain circumstances. You know, if her, if her, if her, you know, a loved one dies or something like this. Yes, I, ideally, in future we will we will uh, eliminate uh, aging and death. But that's uh, that's a that's a good way off. Um, to which I, c- I can only respond that uh, yes, if if, if I suffered. Uh, well, if I were to die or to suffer misfortune, I would want this to diminish the well-being of friends and loved ones, but I wouldn't want them to suffer uh, on my account. And I think that is, 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 is unreasonable. Well, I also suppose maybe uh, perhaps you might get pushback from, say, artistic types who, who feel like suffering is, is a well of inspiration. Do you ever hear that? response yes and it's uh, undoubtedly true that you know much uh, great art uh, in literature has been associated with with suffering in some cases artists rather than scientists some of them seem to have had mental illness or bipolarity uh, but you know, in, in principle, at any rate, technically, we can use biotechnology. Let's just take the example of, of, of art to actually engineer modes of aesthetic experience that are far more sublime and wonderful than anything physiologically feasible today. And well, first of all, wouldn't want to take away anyone's uh, rationalizations but it doesn't seem to be computationally, functionally indispensable to suffer uh, 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 to produce uh, a great art. And either way, I don't think anyone should be forced uh, 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 to suffer against their will. Perhaps, perhaps, the, perhaps the, we haven't talked about this yet, but perhaps the, the choice angle should be, uh, sh- should be stressed really strongly here, that though... Yes, tentatively, I think there are grounds for thinking we are going to phase out the biology of unpleasant experience. It seems highly unlikely that anyone is going to be forced to be happy. We're we're not talking about coercive happiness. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think uh, with regard to the artistic argument, audience also is a key part of that argument, isn't it? I mean, if, uh, if society at large is leaving behind its suffering then um, I suspect that the art they will most respond to will... The subjects will change. ...also be about people who've left behind their suffering or also be capable of being produced by people who've left behind their suffering. Because uh, I think part of what makes great art in our current tradition so commonly associated with the suffering artist is that we're all suffering (laughs) and we like to relate to our art. Yeah, yeah. So I think it may help you now, but I'm not sure it's going to help you uh, when when this starts moving. The artist might want to be the last one on the bus uh, to get the shot, but but I think they'll be right there with everyone else. Should we talk about how we get there? Because it seems like the main path that you have laid out so far in our discussion is this notion of genetic selection of our children. Is that the main way you see this happening? And I would say that that's... Certainly disappointing to those of us who are already locked in today. <laughs> you know, don't. <laughs> yeah, there, there are two questions. There's the, there's the here and now or the near term uh, future, and then there is is the long term. In the long term, yes, I think increasingly prospective parents do have an obligation if they're going to be bringing new life into the world, not to choose gratuitous suffering. Uh, it needn't involve genetic. Engineering, as I said, pre-implantation genetic screening is not true designer babies, so that will be uh, becoming. But yes, that's that's 
the long term and I think there will be selection pressure against a lot of our nastier alleles but yes what about people uh, alive uh, today um, and yeah a, a lot of the advice unfortunately one one can give in the in the here and now is you know the kind of the boring stuff your your mother taught you about uh, you know uh, eating well uh, vigorous exercise sleep uh, uh, discipline stuff like that however there are Quite a few people who do absolutely everything right and their quality of life is, is low because, uh, yes, let's say they have a, a low hedonic set point or they have anxiety disorders, uh, prone, to, pro, prone to depression. What can they do? Uh, and yes, of course, there are uh, various uh, uh, drugs, I one can call them drugs or, or medicines uh, that do offer the prospect of an improved quality of life. Unfortunately, it's, we're still in the territory to a very large extent of suck it and see. One can read up all the existing literature on a particular agent, uh, particular agent uh, and until you try it, you won't know whether it suits you. Um, by drugs here, I'm not talking, for the most part at any rate, about today's recreational street drugs which will frequently make you feel very high for a few hours followed by low i'm thinking of uh yes a, a mood brightness or antidepressants um but uh unfortunately uh, most of of t today's mood brightness are not a particularly brilliant bunch um, but one hopes this will change um in the slightly longer term future um it should be possible to not merely to have better designer drugs but also to start tweaking your own genome starting off with individual genes and uh, eventually clusters of genes and, and their expression uh, until a few years ago this this probably sounded utopian um, but uh, no sort of breakneck developments, uh, so-called uh, CRISPR uh, technologies, mean that, yes, in future we we'll may be able to tweak our own genomes. Uh, that probably still sounds implausible to many people uh, at any rate, but together with the new technologies will come the development of sophisticated software tools and, and user interfaces. So one won't need to become a, a complete genetic engineer to do this. But this is probably, for the most part, at any rate, two to three decades down the road. Possibly before then, I don't know. This is, uh, uh, this is speculation. Uh, but just as we're, we're familiar with the notion that, that perhaps non-biological uh, robots will one day be capable of recursive self-improvement, likewise biological robots, organic robots like us, should in principle be possible of uh, recursive self-improvement, editing their own genetic source code too. And uh, yes, I would hope we can uh, bootstrap our way into a triple S civilization of, yes, of, of super happiness, uh, super longevity and super intelligence. You've mentioned uh, people wanting to preserve their their preference architecture, the things that they care about, the things they prefer over other things, while still becoming, in general, happier. But what about whether or not those preferences themselves are what you would want, right? I mean, if you can start to imagine humans uh, changing their level of happiness, you can maybe start to imagine them intentionally changing what they care about. And this is something that you've touched on a little bit in your writing. I believe you called it the reencephalization of emotion or actually sort of changing our desires from maybe things that, 
you know, were good in the past, but maybe aren't so great today. Can you give us some examples of what that might look like? Yes. Uh, if, if one is addressing, uh, shall we say, a more conservatively oriented audience, uh, yes, in many cases, they, they would want uh, assurance that what they, they, they value most uh, isn't going to be somehow lost. But many of the preferences we have will be of a very unpleasant and Darwinian Nature. It takes something like jealousy, for example. Yes, it would be possible to preserve uh, the function of jealousy. Alternatively, uh, it would be possible, once again, in principle at any rate, uh, to eliminate jealousy altogether. One knows that under the influence of certain fast-acting drugs like MDMA, that the experience of jealousy can be banished, but in, in principle, it would be possible to do that long term. So yes, any think think of any of our uh, core uh, emotions, uh, 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 anxiety or anger or disgust. There are two questions: Do we want to preserve the particular functional role, and do we want to preserve the raw feel? And in the case of, for example, something like anxiety, clearly it can serve a very valuable functional role, but we wouldn't necessarily want to uh, preserve the extremely unpleasant raw feels of extreme anxiety. But in the case of, of jealousy, do we want to preserve either the functional role of jealousy or its nasty raw feels? One can understand that jealousy, particularly sexual jealousy, is extremely genetically adaptive or has been in the ancestral environment, but is it worth conserving? It doesn't actually seem that far-fetched to me that we would attempt to breed people or, or treat people such that they didn't have the more destructive, uh, maybe genetically adaptive back in the wild days, traits that, that are now threatening to civilization. But at the same time, I mean, this does get a little scary. And e even for me, who's not conservative about this issue, because it goes right into the issue of identity. I mean, once mm -hmm. you're like, if you, I mean, I feel like under examination, like almost all of my desires uh, seem a little bit arbitrary. I mean, you know, I guess jealousy is an easy one to say like, well, what, what good is it to you? But, you know, like so many desires, you know, like, like what's, you know, they almost at a certain point are what you are, right? So you have to, you have to keep some of them and, when you start putting them all under examination, it, it starts to feel like what's left, you know, what are, what are humans? Well, and the pace of change, too, I think makes a difference here because uh, we've, I mean, our desires now are different from the, what human desires were a thousand or two thousand years ago, but they're not that different from what they were 20 years ago. You don't see that much difference in a short period of time. If all of a sudden we can reprogram our desires very, um, very much at will, we might see... Uh, a lot of change rapidly, and that might be very disturbing. Yeah, clearly, in one sense, uh, yes, our ancestors didn't uh, desire uh, iPhones or iPads or mobile phones or something like that. Right. But in another sense, our core repertoire of of desires is remarkably similar to our ancestors. Sure. You know, the pursuit, you know, the pursuit of, of 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 status, reproductive opportunities. Uh, as, as, as a child, I recall reading the lives of the, of the Roman emperors and just how, uh, how you know, just absolute power corrupts that 
if you give uh, someone, let's just, you know, to choose just to, the, the average person, you give them absolute power, uh, uh, yes, it, it, it does tend to uh, corrupt in countless ways. And it might be nice to think, and the reason I'm saying this is that it's, it's just a, a, an insight into our nature that other things being equal, all sorts of uh, extraordinarily uh, unpleasant and selfish behaviors can be witnessed in the lives of everything from the Ottoman sultans uh, to Roman emperors to people today who are in a position of, of, of great power. Uh, so, yes, I, I hope that we can ultimately uh, t- uh, transcend human nature. Well, and as transhumanists, we have to take this seriously because we propose to give people a lot more power at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, maybe not over <laughs> each other, but at least over themselves and over the world that they experience. So we have to... Uh, be aware of that and 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 have strategies in mind for how we're not going to just turn everyone into their own like virtual Caligula sitting in a you know a VR palace um, uh, you know being horrible. Uh. <laughs> That's a good example, though, because uh, yes, uh, so long as it is done in immersive VR, there is a case <laughs> that people should be allowed to live out their fantasies of uh, being whether Caligula or a Roman uh, emperor or master of the universe or anything like that. But uh, yes, uh, talk of radical freedom and empowerment when it impacts on the lives of others is, is very different. Well, and also, you know, some of these desires, like outright cruelty in the case of Caligula or, uh, you know, jealousy, are really easy to problematize. But I think one of the things you mentioned earlier was status, say. And I think, like, seeking status is one of these things to me that's a little more ambiguous. Like, obviously, that can lead to very bad behavior. But in some cases, that's, you know, the type of, you know, ambition and drive that we respect, that we feel like, you know, sometimes moves the ball forward in terms sure, of the greatest progress. philanthropy and such is also arguably status seeking so it becomes you know it does i think become a really challenging question to to answer what are the good desires and what are the bad ones yeah um, what are the values we wish to preserve right and which are the ones we wish to leave by the wayside or diminish Yes, so this is it. Though one talks of uh, transhumanist talk of a a future of unlimited material abundance, there are positional goods uh, such as status. And yes, as we move more into an economy driven by attention and status, status goods aren't going to increase in abundance. Um, But even though not everyone can enjoy high status in the conventional sense, uh, there's no reason why everyone can't, at least in principle, enjoy an extremely high hedonic set point. Uh, so everyone's quality of life can be richer, even if not everyone can have the highest possible status. Right, a little competition is okay as long as everyone's having fun while doing it, I guess. is maybe <laughs> one way you could put that. Right, or not everyone can win, but everyone can feel okay about playing. Yeah. <laughs> Part of your um, what you advocate for is, you know, the, the elimination of suffering in all sentient life, emphasis on all. And so, you know, obvious to talk about humans first, but I know that uh, you want to extend that, of course, to the animal kingdom and and presumably to other life that may or may not exist in the future, um, possibly of artificial origin. And I I was surprised, and it made perfect sense because it seemed like it came naturally from your starting assumptions, but when I first read your work, that you were actually advocating for, you know, say, redesigning natural predator and prey relationships in the, in the wild. So that's to the, the extent to which you're saying we should uh, eliminate all suffering, even that which, you know, I think intuitively we tend to 
usually throw up our hands and say, well, that's just kind of how nature works. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on, on those goals of sort of redesigning the, the whole, uh, yeah. You know, L- lived experience yeah. of yeah. Earth. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's hard to even come up with a phrase. Yeah, for well, for for the start, yeah, uh, for the you know, most people's response if they hear, if, uh, first hear this idea, they'll think, ah, oh, head in the clouds, philosophers, you know, completely uh, ecologically illiterate, don't 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 philosophers understand the thermodynamics of a, a food chain. Um, I'll come to that in the mo- <laughs> in a moment, but. First of all, our, our ethical priority when it comes to non-humans uh, is to stop systematically harming them before we can even even seriously contemplate actively helping non-humans. Uh, yeah, we need to get factory farms and, and slaughterhouses shut. Uh, and uh, yes, the level of sentience and sapience of uh, cows and pigs and sheep and victims on our, our farms is is comparable to everything from a small infant to a pre-linguistic uh, toddler. And yeah, we, we routinely do things to non-human animals that we get the perpetrators locked up for life if our victims were human. And I think the road for, forward here, it's a twin track strategy. Uh, on the one hand, I I think we should use moral argument to persuade people to uh, uh, to quit meat and to attempt to lead a, a cruelty-free, ideally vegan lifestyle, probably more realistically vegetarian lifestyle for for many people. Um, but uh, as well as the moral argument, I think in vitro meat uh, needs to be developed. A breakneck program of development and commercialization of in vitro meat uh, and yes i would hope that within the next two to three decades it will be possible to get factory farms and slaughterhouses shut um so yeah that's one aspect of the plight of done human animals but yes uh, what about the rest of the living world uh, nature Red in tooth and claw, food chain, uh, nature is incredibly cruel. We're probably used to, to wildlife documentaries and many of us perhaps have a rather bambified or romanticized conception of what the living world is all about. But yeah, the, the quality of life of most non-humans in the wild is, is often pretty low, frequently hungry. And yes, there is the problem of, of predation. And perhaps the most counterintuitive aspect of phasing out suffering in the rest of the living world is, uh, yes, what should we do about non-human uh, uh, predators? And I think most people have this this. I can't. I probably shouldn't use the word schizoid, but I mean, think. Okay, think what being a predator involves. Um, we we, we demonise humans who prey on the weak and uh, and the vulnerable, and any human who hurts a try, you know, a child or abuses children. We think they should be locked up. And when it and yet when it comes to non-human predators, we think of them as, as you know noble. You know, the lion, king of the beasts, eagles, uh, and. Uh, Yet, do we really want to preserve this kind of uh, behavior? Um, and w- but one of the advantages of the new uh, biotechnologies is that in principle, at any rate, it would be possible to use anything from in vitro meat to genetic reprogramming to uh, cross-species immunocontraception to regulate 
the behavior and, and take care of the lives of non-human animals in our future wildlife parks to which many people would think well that's turning the turning the living world into in, into a zoo but it's worth distinguishing between uh, being wild and free living uh, humans flourish best when we're neither wild nor caged but you no know, free living like uh, like, like we are now and I think the, the, the same is true of non-human animals too and if we wanted to in tomorrow's wildlife parks yes we could uh, ensure that uh, yes starting off with the uh, large long-lived vertebrates uh, they all live uh, happy flourishing lives once again it's not uh, immediately uh, probably practicable, more for sociological than, than technical reasons. But in, in the long run, yes, we'll have to take this kind of uh, decision. Do we want to have a world of, of living creatures uh, eating each other with hunger, starvation, disembowelment, all, all the parasitism, all, all the ghastliness of the living world's exists uh, at present? Or, or, or do we want... Uh, yes, uh, a world in which all sentient beings can flourish. So yeah, all this stems obviously from the the starting premise of animals and, and humans uh, being roughly equivalent, which is a starting premise that obviously much of the world doesn't share. We wouldn't have the sort of factory farms that uh, that you're talking about. And so I have to kind of ask sort of the hard philosophical question of, you know, what uh, makes some kinds of life worthy of regard? Should be we be sad for you know an insect that we step on? Um, what what is the metric for determining that you use personally to determine you know what life deserves this sort of treatment that we normally only give to humans? Yeah, I think if one takes a god's eye view, a god's eye perspective, uh, what matters is 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 sentience and consciousness and the capacity to suffer. Uh, and pigs, yes, they're not much uh, brighter than a, a two-year-old, uh, you know, eighteen-month-old pre-linguistic pre toddler. Um, uh, and yes, I think ethically, in the case of an irreconcilable conflict of interest, one is entitled to prefer the interests of the more sentient over the the less sentient of of of, of humans or pigs over uh, Anopheles mosquitoes. Say, but uh, yes, we, we we shouldn't allow criteria such as the fact that you or I happen to be human to to influence influence our judgment uh, yes black people are not the same as as white people and uh and pigs are not the same as human babies or pre-linguistic toddlers um but the same core emotions uh are at stake this the uh, in the case of yeah you you, you know one actually looks at the structures of of the brain that mediate our, our core our core emotions and feelings and they're uh, and, and they're almost identical so uh yes uh, that, that that to my mind at any rate is 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 is, is the benchmark um, it's not this this idea that uh, we should be caring rather than exploiting members of other species. It's not tied to one particular ethical belief system. You can be a, you know, a utilitarian or a pluralist or a deontologist or a virtue theorist, or you can be religious, you know, a Jain or a, a Buddhist, or you can be a, a Christian. After all, uh, you know, the Bible talks of the lion uh, li lying down with the lamb. 
Um, but yes, we need we need to escape from our, I think, from from our savage past. That clearly it was adaptive in the ancestral environment to be able to to, to hunt, to exploit, to kill members of other tribes and other species. But we don't need to do that today. It, it seems to me like also if we assume equivalence, say, uh, you know, between a human toddler, say, and a, a pig, you know, in terms of, of sentience and, and experience of feeling, and say that they're both equally deserving of our regard, that then that also implies the sort of non-intuitive result that then if you could upgrade the, the pig's intelligence that you should do that? Does that follow? Uh, yes, it does too. But, you know, there, there's this argument, to, 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 would uh, a pig that who is much, much more intelligent still be a pig? And of course, this is, is, this is the same uh, of humans too. If you, if you uplift us or upgrade us, to, when do we cease to be human? Uh, so yes, there there are philosophical questions of the nature of of identity here. I yeah. can certainly imagine from the pig's perspective. Once he realizes how we use the word pig, he might want to be called something else. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. So uplifting, um, which is this idea of taking um, natural animals and uh, genetically engineering them, or somehow changing them to uh, to give them human-like or, or beyond human intelligence uh, in your uh, metric seems to make them more valuable or more urgently deserving of our, uh, our respect and compassion. Does that seem right? Yeah. In principle, at any rate, I think we <laughs> ought to this be... Obviously, totally speculative, so... <laughs> yeah, it's once, once again, in principle, it ought to be possible to pursue a kind of high-tech Jainism that, you know, within <laughs> later this century and beyond, every cubic meter of the living world is going to be computationally accessible to surveillance, micromanagement, and control. But, yeah, for the next uh, few decades, at, at any rate, let's focus on large uh, larger vertebra- vertebrates say and yeah it's it's not as though that there's some agonizing choice or dilemma or that there needn't be you know that it's often you know what a burning building who would you wreck it who would you rescue the the, the pig <laughs> or the child or anything like that uh, it, 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 <laughs> That's not that's that, that that's not the problem. I mean, you know, people we eat people people eat meat today because they like the taste, and you know, veggie. You know, one can adopt a vegetarian and vegan lifestyle and 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 and, and flourish on on that too. So yeah, we we shouldn't think of it as a case of human interest versus non-human animal interests. That you know, statistically, vegetarians do tend to be slimmer, longer lived, uh, even have higher IQ. Uh, IQ scores on average, so it, it doesn't involve a kind of sacrifice, uh, shutting down factory farms and slaughterhouses. Right. I mean, we went. Uh, I, I may have taken us straight off the deep end into the very speculative territory, but but of course, yeah, dealing with the factory farms and the, the current cruelty towards animals is obviously a priority that one could focus on today. Yes, I mean, as I said, for, for completeness, at least completeness on Earth, yeah, I mean, one can go into the more speculative and fanciful sounding stuff. They're not 
not technically that fanciful, but certainly not something we're likely to be doing the next uh, the, the next few years. But yeah, compared to the you know the horrors of what we're doing on fa- in, in factory farms and and, and, and slaughterhouses, yes, uh, it, it really does sound a bit fantastical for now, at least actively helping uh, uh, free living non humans. Now, you mentioned earlier in vitro meat, which is, of course, a way to grow meat in a lab that's, you know, not been associated with the nervous system or with a sentient being. And uh, that's that's a technology solution to this problem for people who uh, otherwise uh, might be morally apathetic on this issue. And so obviously that, I mean, that's a, a great solution. Do you follow the the research in that area? Like, do you know what the state of that technology is? I assume that's of great interest to you. I, yes, even though I find, personally, I find the idea disgusting. I think its development uh, is absolutely essential uh, uh, ethically. One widespread misconception uh, people have is that in vitro meat is somehow genetically engineered. Uh, it's not, or at least it certainly needn't be so. It is. It can be genetically identical to uh, to a, a meat from a, a live uh, non-human animal. Um, the problem is, even though now in vitro mint meat can be developed, uh, uh, developing precisely the same kind of texture of muscle protein is difficult. Um, so precisely when gourmet in in vitro meat products will be hitting the shelves uh, I, I don't know some people have suggested you know as as certainly as the next five six to, 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 to ten years i'm i'm more pessimistic but yes i think it's coming uh, uh, the, the 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 in vitro meat revolution and i think once we have actually made the transition uh, yes, our grandchildren will look back in in absolute horror. You know the idea that their their, their grandparents systematically uh, abused and then killed sentient beings for for the reasons they did. And uh, yeah, what, what are we going to tell them? But ah, but they they, they tasted good. You know, it's uh, it's, it's pretty th- said bear. Well, I think it's uh, highly culturally coded too. Uh, the eating of meat and the use of meat products in various preparations is, uh, you know, ingrained tradition throughout the world and in every single culture or nearly every culture. And uh, there's more to it than just it tastes good. I mean, I understand the, you know, I understand from a moral point of view, none of that excuses it if you buy that these are sentient beings worthy of respect. But uh, I, I yes, doubt we'll have I mean, to tell that, yeah. them such a uh, such a callous <laughs> sounding story. We could say, well, it was what people did for thousands of years. And well, that is kind of what we say about, say, slavery, though, too. You know, that's a very similar story that we tell. Sure. And there was utility to slavery. That doesn't make it less of a horror. Right. Um, and I think, you know, you can you can appreciate those things. So, um yeah, that's yes, about about a, about a fifth of the world's population don't ever eat any meat. Uh, some simply because they're very poor. Others, like you know, the traditions of the Indian subcontinent, with this notion of ahimsa or, or, or harmlessness for religious or, or, or ethical reasons. Um, but yes, you, if you look across history and you look across uh, the spectrum of human cultures, you get everything from uh, certain Inuit tribes that might have got 99% of their uh, nutrition from flesh to, uh, uh, to, to vegans. But yes, yeah, certainly from cultures like our own in which 
meat eating has played a prominent a prominent place yes it can be very can be very uh, difficult and counterintuitive to recognize that something that one has you know been brought up to think is is normal and natural and ordinary might actually be ethical ethically indefensible well that's why i find the lab grown meat so appealing because you can uh, make a direct substitution and it doesn't require a giant cultural project of dismantling tons of historically ingrained preferences you can just s- replace the meat with the with the fake meat <laughs> um and you solved your ethical problem without changing anything else uh, it just seems to me like a a a more just a more pragmatic solution at the end of the day, not a better or worse solution, but just one that what seems more likely to uh, to get implemented. In terms of sociological realism, yeah. I, I think you're right. I mean, there are some uh, animal activists, radical vegans who are you know opposed to in vitro meat. Uh, you know, they just, you know they say it's 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 a distraction that we should be making the t- the, the, the transition now. Um, but moral argument alone, it, it could be centuries. Uh, if if then before uh, most people could be be won over, whereas yes, one definition of transhumanism is technical solutions to ethical problems. <laughs> I like that a lot. Uh, yeah, funny. yeah. Um, well, so let's before we wrap up, let's go to one more weird speculative place, which is that you've mentioned already. You know, high tech Jainism and the extreme of you know being careful not to step on an ant, say and. I'd like to talk about the overlap with that and possible superintelligence in the future, which is something that you've written about. So the idea that if we imagine a future that possibly has beings that are far more intelligent and powerful than we are today, then it might be in our interest to establish a principle that you know we, we respect all life, however small and insignificant <laughs> it might seem to us, uh, since you know maybe we shouldn't step on ants now, basically, because we might be the ants ourselves later is is that a good summary of of yes i mean what does what does superintelligence actually entail uh, and if you ask people how do you conceive a future of post-human superintelligence inevitably to some extent one one's story is 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 uh, of what it involves is, is 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 autobiographical i mean we, we off or at least you know a lot of people would would describe uh superintelligence in terms of extraordinarily high iq um but iq tests don't measure mind reading prowess or perspective taking ability uh at all and as uh, as i would see it Post-human, full-spectrum post-human superintelligence will involve, yes, a, a godlike capacity to imagine all relevant first-person uh, perspectives. Uh, yeah, I mean, three particular conceptions of, of post-human superintelligence, and this is a gross simplification, but I'm going to make it anyway. Uh, there's one conception of post-human superintelligence that it imagines it as some kind of Singleton, this is the I.J. Good, uh, Miri, uh, Bostrom I- I- intelligence I- I explosion. Uh, and yes, this post-human singleton superintelligence may or may not be, uh, be sentient or human friendly. Uh, and then there is the Kurtzweilian scenario, this kind of fusion of humans and machines that makes any distinction between us completely meaningless. But there is... Another scenario that one can 
uh, uh, paint is that post-human superintelligence will be our, our biological descendants because, yes, uh, 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 cracking the genome means that organic robots too, we can recursively uh, uh, rewrite our own genetic source code um, and with the aid of, of AI too, uh, yes, we can, uh, we can become uh, uh, super intelligent and do everything, for example, from reversible thalamic bridges that are, will allow us to be able to, to mind meld with other humans, transhumans and, and posthumans to, to all kinds of uh, exotic technologies like that. Once again, this is this this is speculative. None of us can really understand what what post-human superintelligence might entail. Right, right. Of course, none of us really know for sure. But what I'm sort of interested in here is in the first conception, the the sort of where it's it's not us. It's sort of this other thing. It's the singleton, the the mm. uh, the Miri conception. Part of the arguments of Miri and and Nick Bostrom and is that, you know, we can't expect that the superintelligence will be ethical. You know, we have no guarantee of that. And I'm sure you're familiar with those arguments. What you said earlier about how an incredible intelligence would be able to imagine every possible first-person perspective. Right, sort of have super empathy. Right, kind of implies perhaps a counter-argument of, you know, would superintelligence possibly be more ethical, at least in the sense that it could put itself in others' shoes. Is that the case? Is there an argument to be made there or no? Yes. I, I suppose we, we, we come here into difficult issues about uh, uh, does uh, intelligence involve consciousness and self-consciousness or is consciousness uh, redundant? Uh, now, for technical reasons, I am extremely skeptical that classical digital computers are ever going to become conscious or, or, or self-conscious. And there are a range of uh, activities that sentient or organic robots like us can do that are completely beyond the uh, conception of a classical digital computer, not, not least uh, talk about consciousness, different states of consciousness consciousness, to explore altered states of consciousness. Um, it's not clear uh, that these questions are even meaningful to a classical uh, a digital computer. Uh, some people assume that at some stage in the future that uh, 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 digital computers are somehow going to, going to wake up or become conscious, but uh, this is left wholly unexplained um and uh yes for technical reasons i don't think this is going to happen right well it's a it's a very hard prediction problem so um perhaps we should uh we should start to wrap it up yeah do let's you, wrap it up what do you what are you work currently working on that you know maybe we can you know direct our listeners to or what are you most excited about right now in, in 2015 um, in terms of what I'm most uh, excited about, uh, is, 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 is in some ways actually politics that's starting in the USA, but uh, now in, the, uh, in Europe too, that a number of transhumanist parties are, are, are forming. Um, and yes, uh, it looks as though various transhum distinctively transhumanist issues from radical life extension to superintelligence to, I hope, uh, this is more speculative, pre-implantation genetic screening and in vitro meat going to actually become 
part of the mainstream political agenda. Yeah, and that's quite amazing for those of us who have been at this a while. You've been obviously doing this way longer than us, but we've been uh, following these issues for 10 years or so and 15 years. And, and they've been completely absent from politics. Utterly for the most absent. Part. Yeah, I mean, they just get laughed at to the extent that they get discussed at all. And uh, I, I see the same thing you're seeing. I'm seeing um, some minor amount of mainstream acceptance and a growing sort of fringe movement that's pushing these things uh, closer and closer to the mainstream. So yeah, let's wrap it up there. Thank you so much uh, for having this conversation with us. Yeah, uh, it was a real pleasure. And thanks very much. Uh, it's been great chatting. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.